We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and then at some point we're going to reference back to Acts chapter 26, so it'll be helpful for you to have that marked. Many years ago when I moved to Wilmington, I thought it'd be cool to be in a movie. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't looking for anything great, but you know, you just kind kind of think it'd be cool to be around and see what they do, and so... I went to wherever you sign up to be an extra, and and it wasn't long afterwards I got a phone call from the company that hires extras, and they said, Mr. Phillips, we'd like for you to be in the Matlock TV show. You guys remember that? I mean, most of you actually aren't old enough to remember it, sadly, but it's still in reruns. And so we, we need you and one other guy to be in a scene with Matlock, with Andy Griffith. I was like, oh, cool. And they were like, you just need to look like a lawyer, so get a gray suit. Wear a gray suit. And I was like, okay. So I went out and bought a gray suit and uh, showed up. And so I'm in this scene with uh, Andy Griffith. Just me, this guy, and Andy, and the director and the camera guy. And, you know, it was really fun because because I was sort of in this scene at different points. Just it was me standing next to Andy. And, of course, you know, I'd been in a high school play, and so I felt like it was incumbent upon me to give some tips and things that, you know, Annie might be able to use from my great experience. And it was funny, um, you know, they filmed the show, and, you know, some number of months later it comes on television. And um, after it aired, an old college friend, a guy I hadn't seen in a couple years, he lived in Nashville, Tennessee, he calls me that night. He said, I'm pretty sure I just saw you on the Matlock television show. <clears throat> well, I'm assuming the, the theme in television shows with a lawyer in a courtroom is not going to go away. Somehow it gets resurrected. Yeah, the storylines, you know, they're pretty much all the same. Uh, there's something happens in the beginning, and this lawyer, in this case Matlock, he picks up these clues for 45 or 50 minutes, and then at the very end, there's sort of a dramatic courtroom scene where he puts it all together and he delivers this message, and you say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I can see it. I see. That's right. That's that's right." And that's really what's happening here. In 1 Corinthians 15, just like a a lawyer making his closing arguments, the Apostle Paul here in this chapter is like a lawyer. He's trying to present a case. He's trying to say, I'm trying to deliver something of of first importance, he says. "This This is my priority delivery, and the way I'm delivering it is much like a lawyer. I'm trying to to make a case for the truth of Christianity. And so Paul just isn't writing random things down on a paper. He, he's delivering uh, this compelling, closing case for the truth about Christianity. And at the core of his argument, as we'll see, is the resurrection. So, so Paul's argument at least has two different groups of people in mind. He's, he's, he's writing one to, to strengthen the believer. Because he knows that once you become a Christian, questions don't automatically end. 
You have questions internally about the truth of Christ. And then you have your friends or your family. They come up and they start asking you questions. So he's trying to to come in and to shore up the faith of these young new Christians in the city of Corinth. And he's trying to say, guys, this is the argument. This is how, how you would begin to present Christ to your friends. And, of course, Paul has another audience in mind. It's the unbeliever. He's trying to stir up the unbeliever. And he doesn't do it in the way that like cable news does it. It's not like two people trying to shout over each other to try to get the information in. It's much more uh, measured. It's much more winsome. He's just presenting these pieces of evidence for uh, the unbeliever to wrestle with and to say, well, if that's true, what else could be true? Or how would I argue or Say something for or against that. So I'm assuming on this Easter morning there are people in both of those camps. There are some people here who are maybe questioning, skeptical, uncertain. I mean, you come on Easter Sunday because your mom wants you to come or your, your grandmother wants you to be here. But you're not particularly convinced about the truth of Christianity. And then there are other people here who are Christians and and maybe they are facing these kinds of questions internally or externally. And it's helpful to to see Paul's argument to to shore up your faith. And you can see it very easily in this text. He he delivers his case in in three different parts. It's like he's he's building a a three legged stool. And after he gets done, he's going to rest his case and he's going to say, now, what what do you think about that? And the three points in the text is he makes this intellectual appeal. He appeals to the mind. And then he makes a moral appeal. And then he makes what I would say is a a philosophical appeal. And maybe another way to say that is an appeal to your soul, appeal to your worldview. So mind, morals, and your soul are the three stools, three Three legs on the stool. His first and his primary appeal is an intellectual appeal. He's, he's asking his audience to think. He's not, he's not coming in emotionally driven. I mean, he can be emotionally driven, but in this particular place, he's really saying, I'm trying to engage your mind. I'm trying to, trying to get you to think about the facts that are out here in front of us. And he does that in, in two ways. Number one, and you can see it very easily in verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, I'm telling you what has happened, and look at the phrase, in accordance with... With the scriptures, it's mentioned twice, once in chapter th- or verse three, once in chapter four. And, and Paul, when he says in accordance with the scriptures, he's not primarily thinking of one particular Old Testament uh, prophecy or verse. And he's bringing it into the New Testament. He's thinking about the, all the historical momentum of the Old Testament that has forever been pointing to Christ. And he's saying, I'm just trying to help you see that all of these words that have been previously written, they've all been pointing in one particular direction. And that reality is... Christ. I'm not saying anything new. I'm taking all this old information and saying it's been pointing in this direction. For thousands of years, words have been written down. And now finally they find their reality in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we could say a lot of things, but just think of a few words written in Genesis chapter 3 about Adam and Eve and their fall. 
and the sin and shame that they had and it needed to be covered and God covered it by sacrificing an animal. These words find their reality in Christ. When He gives His coat of righteousness to us, he, we take on all of His goodness and He takes on all of our sin and He becomes the sacrifice that gives us life and hope. The words written in Genesis chapter 50 about a, a band of brothers who wanted to kill one of their own, wanted to put to death one of the sons. And they tried to, but they only later to find that the, the son was actually alive. And not only alive, but they were facing him and he was a powerful person. Instead of using that power then for their destruction, the people who tried to put him to death, he saves them from starvation. He saves them from themselves. The story of Joseph and his brothers. And in a very powerful verse, he looks, or a statement, he looks at his brothers and he says, you know what you meant for evil? God meant for good. And he meant it to save Many lives in those words written 15,000 years before the death of Christ. What, what we meant for evil, God meant for good. And that good was going to save many, many people. In accordance with the scriptures, uh, Queen Esther, who stood before the king and, and risked her own life on behalf of her people, these words find their reality in Jesus who stands before God and he doesn't just risk his life, he gives his life for his people. Words written about Jonah who spends three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish and he's spit out of this watery grave to say, repent. He goes to the worst people on the planet and he says, come home, repent, turn around. And now we know Hundreds of years later, Christ spit out of a grave on Easter morning and looking at the worst people in the world and saying, come on, repent. See, everything that Paul is saying, he's not making something up new. It's not some new religion that the disciples decided to start in 33 A.D. No, he's grabbing hold of all this historical Old Testament momentum and he's saying, see, it's all found. It all finds its reality in Christ. Second sort of intellectual fact about how Paul is presenting his case. You see it again in the text. He mentions it four times. He uses the phrase, he appeared. Verse 4, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas or to Peter and then to the twelve. Then, verse 6, he appeared. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time, some of whom are, or most of whom are still alive, even though some have since passed away. See, see, he's appeared. There's an empty tomb. There's an actual empty tomb that you can go visit, and you can see from Peter and the apostles, but not just them, 500 people. We're not talking about just believing my testimony. You can go ask other people who saw it. And we're not talking about a hallucination from just 12 men trying to spread something. The, a, a 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. See, he's trying to say he appeared. He appeared then to James. You remember James, his brother, 
his younger brother, who when Jesus started his ministry, James came to where Jesus was preaching and said, hey, he's out of his mind. I'm so sorry, my crazy brother. And he tries to sort of get him out and say, I mean, who would, who would believe what he's saying? But yet, Jesus appeared to his younger brother. And then James becomes the leader of the early church. And then, a, like somebody who's completely lost, Paul. He's not just far away. He's actually driving in a different direction. He's persecuting people who believe in Christ. And Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. See, he appeared. There's an empty tomb. There's a, a fact that you have to wrestle with that Paul's trying to say. That, that all these Old Testament pictures, all these things that happened factually have been pointing in a direction. And the reality is Jesus. This empty tomb, this appearance to so many different people, it actually happened. And he's trying to make this appeal to our minds. Do you, do you see that? Do you trust in it? N.T. Wright, the well-known English commentator, said this. If it was only an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, people would have believed the body was stolen. If it's only been an eyewitness claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had the body in it, then everybody would believe that they were hallucinating. But only if all these things were true, the empty tomb, the sightings, the permanently changed lives, only if all these things were true, could Christianity ever begun. So his, his first, Paul's first appeal, his, the first leg in his stool is to say, just think about the facts. How would you, if you don't believe those, how would you wrestle against those facts? How is it that this thing that started in 33 AD just ballooned and really overtook the Roman Empire? If it, if it wasn't really true, how would you account for what's happened? See, so he's just making this appeal. And, and you may say, well, there seems to be some benefit for these guys. They saw Jesus. But, I mean, it's 2,000 years later. What would you say to somebody who couldn't have seen him? You can't go see the, the 500 people. And it's very interesting. In Acts chapter 26, you actually have that conversation. Paul is standing before a governor named Festus and a king named Agrippa. And they're aware of things that have happened, but they didn't actually see Jesus. So I want to turn back there quickly and let's just see how Paul makes this personal approach. Be the same way that you might make an approach to somebody as well. Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, he says this. I myself, he's standing there, he's making this case. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Christ. See, he's starting out with saying, this was my starting point, Festus. This was my starting point, Agrippa. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but, but I put them to death. I, I cast my vote. I, I punished them often. In the synagogues, I tried to make them blaspheme. I was in a raging fury against the early Christians. And not just people around me in Jerusalem. I, I persecuted them even to the, the farthest city. See, you see Paul's starting point? I find this so fascinating how he starts. I wonder if you see it. Paul says, in effect, I didn't want to believe in Jesus. 
I didn't need Jesus. I mean, my life was unfolding just like I wanted it to unfold, just like I had planned. I didn't believe in Jesus because he was fulfilling. No, quite the opposite. Jesus wasn't fulfilling. He was threatening. He threatened my very existence. He threatened everything I was about. He threatened my belief system. He threatened my personal righteousness. He, he threatened my preferred behavior. When I saw Jesus, I wasn't needing something to be fulfilled. I was fulfilled. And when he came in, he threatened everything that I was trying to fulfill, find fulfillment in. But yet I believed. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because it was true. I think this is fascinating Because so often the starting point for talking to your friends about Jesus is that he gets presented as the savior and the fulfiller of all your needs. It's a frequent way to communicate Christ. But do you hear, do you just hear that? What's at the center of that proclamation? You. You got some needs? Jesus, like the butler, is coming right in and saying, hey, what would you like today? But see, Paul says, no, 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 that's not really the place to start. When you meet this Jesus, he's going to threaten everything about you. He's going to threaten your personal beliefs. He's going to threaten your personal behavior. He's going to be a threat to your righteousness that you think, oh, I'm doing good enough, so God must, must want me for his own. No, he threatens all those things. And Paul believes because it's true. There's a very famous 20th century poet. He wrote in the 1930s and 1940s. His name is W.H. Auden. A few of you might be familiar with his name. W.H. Auden. He grew up apparently in a Christian household, but as he, as he got older, he fell away from Christianity, and then he just disbelieved it all, it, it, all of it, and he really became sort of a well-known atheist. And he lived that way for many years until after some very interesting events that we don't have time to talk about right now. He started moving back towards the church. And then he said, no, I'm a Christian again, which stunned all of his friends. And so one of his friends said, W.H., how is it possible that you've gone back to Christianity? And this is what he said. Listen. I believe in Christianity because Jesus fulfills none of my dreams. I believe because Jesus fulfills none of my dreams. Because he is in every respect the opposite of what, I, what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Do you see what happens is so often Christ just becomes the designer, Jesus. And I'm at the center and I design him so he fulfills all my needs. And W.H. Auden said, no, he doesn't fulfill all my needs. He threatens my very existence. He threatens everything about me. And that's the very reason I actually believe. See, Christ the Lord is risen today. And as I said, ours, the, the cross, the grave. The sky, the, when you really meet Christ, you understand that he threatens before he fulfills. 
You have to die to yourself before you can live for Christ. And so maybe one of my questions, especially on this Easter Sunday, is have you believed in the right Jesus? Or have you just designed a Jesus and you're making him really in your own image and that's the person that you follow? Paul follows in chapter 26 with a personal testimony, 12 through 21. And and then notice in verse 22, he says this. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I'm standing here. I'm testifying to, to people who are small and people who are great. And then he says this. I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and, the, and Moses said would come to pass. See, I'm taking all this historical Old Testament momentum and I'm saying, I'm just saying the same thing again. The reality has come in Christ. And then in a very telling sort of closing remark, he talks about the resurrection and Festus, the governor, who reminds me of a guy who bites his nails a lot. He just can't sit still. And so Paul mentions the resurrection and sort of Festus launches out of his seat to say, you're out of your mind. I've had people say that to me before. So this is a quote. Paul, you are out of your mind. Verse 24. And then notice this. You really have great learning, but this learning somehow is driving you out of your mind. And Paul responds, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. <clears throat> and just notice his temperament. If somebody says you're out of your mind, what's your first response? No, you're, I'll tell you, you're, it's, it's like cable news, is it not? <laughs> oh, you're so excellent, Festus. You yourself are so smart. Surely you can see, what does he say? That these things I'm saying, they're true. They're rational. And then he goes to Agrippa and he says, see, the king knows about these things. For I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. He didn't actually see the resurrection, but he knows these things have happened. They haven't escaped his notice. And then look what he says. For this has not happened in a corner. This information, this, these facts of the resurrection, they didn't happen in a corner. They happened way out in the open so everybody could see, so everybody could say, do I really believe in that or do I, do I not? So Paul's making his first appeal as a, a rational and intellectual appeal. He's trying to stir up the hard hearts of people who would prefer to be king themselves. Second appeal, he makes a, a moral appeal. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's not worth anything. And then he says, and you're still in your sins. See, if Christ hasn't been raised, let's just say Jesus was real, he died, but he didn't really come back to life. Then you're stuck. I'm stuck. We still have this problem called sin, and you can call it whatever you want, but everybody knows it exists. And if he hasn't raised, been raised from the grave, then you're kind of stuck. You're saying, well, what do I do with this situation in my life? Everyone in Corinth, everybody in this room understands the need for forgiveness. You've broken something. You've broken a relationship. 
You've broken an object. You've said things that you shouldn't have said. You've done things you shouldn't have done. And just on a human level, you come back and say to that person, Hey, I need your forgiveness. And you know, if you believe that there is a God, and you're going to meet Him someday, you know. You know it. This doesn't take deep soul searching. You know you need forgiveness. And it's got to come from Him in some way. And if Christ hasn't actually been raised from the dead, then you're stuck in this place. And Paul's saying, just take a look of what's wrestling around in, in your mind, in, in your in your heart. What are you going to do when, when you still have this sin? And the good news is, we can look back at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Yes. See, God saw that there was no way out for Paul Phillips. He wasn't in any way going to turn around. So I came and I died and I paid for his sin. And my question is, is his death sufficient? Yes, that's the answer to that question. That's right. But how do we know it was big enough to conquer our sin? It was sufficient, but how are you sure it was big enough to conquer your sin? Answer, the resurrection. It's like a receipt. It's like saying, yes, I could. Somebody, other people died on a cross that day. You do realize that. At least two others. But their death wasn't sufficient. Their death wasn't even sufficient for their own sins. It certainly couldn't have covered somebody else. But how do you know that Jesus' death was different than the other two guys? He came out of the tomb. He conquered death. The wages of sin is death. And so we've got to have somebody who's got a receipt, who's got proof that he's conquered death. Have you ever been in a clothing store and they forgot to take that little magnetic thing off like the bottom of your dress or whatever? Or, and you've seen this happen. I, it hasn't happened to me, but I've been there when it's happened. And so you're at the registry, you know, and somebody's walking out with the bag. And what happens when they hit the door? I mean, it's like a five-alarm fire. Everybody, and you're standing there horribly embarrassed because you know you just walked through the exit door. And what happens? Some mean-looking security people come towards you quickly, and you're scrambling around. And what are you scrambling around to find? A receipt. I pay. You feel like you need to tell everyone in the store, do you not? I paid! I mean, because everybody's been looking at you now for the last few minutes, and you're pulling it out to everybody. I'm not a thief. You got me. I'm okay. You can trust me with your children. I mean, you're pulling out this receipt. You need some proof that you actually purchased, that you, you paid for the merchandise in full. That's what the resurrection does. It's the receipt to say, I have paid for Paul Phillips' sin in full. And so one day, Paul Phillips and you, maybe the days between now and the next Easter, we don't know. But it will be one day, you're going to take the exit from this life to the next. 
That happens to everybody. And when you go through the exit door, is the alarm going to sound? Hey, he didn't pay. She didn't pay. See, when I go through the exit door, (laughs) Jesus is going to be standing there. He's going to pull out a receipt. It's going to be a real long receipt. (laughs) And he says, see, I'll pay for all these. You come with me. See, that's good news. That is going to happen to everybody on the planet. You will take that door. My question for you today is what will you hear when you walk through that door? Paul makes an intellectual argument. He says, just look at the things that have happened. What would you do with this? Then look at your own condition, your, your own morals. You know that you're carrying some guilt that if, if you really do meet a God, there, there's something's got to be done on your behalf. And then finally, he makes this last appeal, and we'll move quickly. It's actually in a, in a verse that we didn't read, chapter 15, verse 32. Look at that with me. Second part of that verse. If the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, then let's just have a different philosophy of life. Let's eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. See, if there's no resurrection, there's no reason to live an unselfish life. If there's no resurrection, there's no life after this life, then you should just grab hold of all the life that you can. You should stuff yourself with as much of this life that you can, because when it's over, it's over. And I don't know that this is Paul's objective, but I think it does this. I think he's coming at it. He's saying, if this is your worldview, if you don't really believe in the resurrection, you should go out there and just stuff yourself with as much life as you can because it's over. And I think it's a kind of an appeal to reverse psychology. You know, when you're telling somebody to do something because you really want them to do, you know, something else. Or think a different way. I think it's that way. Paul saying, look, go ahead, go out and grab all of life that you can. Because what happens, you know this. What happens when you stuff yourself? Are you satisfied? Most of the time you're miserable. I've eaten all I can. I've, I've drunk all I can. I've grabbed all I can of the world. I'm stuffing it in myself. And finally, when I sort of have my hands all around and I sit down to it, I go, yes, this is life. No, it might last for a moment, but you sit down and you go, I'm so miserable. Why? Because I still, my soul is shrinking. Even though I have a greater portion of the world, my soul has gotten smaller. I would go to camp with high school students and you'd come back and i don't know 20 30 kids on a bus and you know some of them still are trying to just reject christianity or maybe they're wrestling with it and i would say this verse in a different way but i'd just say hey go out and get all of life that you can if you don't trust christ try to get as much of life as you can because what did i know would happen they try but they come coming back Hey, I'm miserable. 
I went out and partied all that I could. I got the best grades. I went to the right college. I, I got the right job. But, Paul, my soul is shrinking. And so Paul understands what you understand. If you get it all, you're still not happy. There's a hole in your soul. He says, look at it from that perspective. I wonder if that describes anybody here this morning. Food, finances, relationships, prestige, partying, health. You're trying to grab more, but your soul is shrinking. There's a song that says when you, when you live in the light of the resurrection, when you really see the hope, not only in this world, but in the next, the things of this world grow strangely dim. They're just not as attractive anymore because I've got my hands around something that's going to last forever. In the book that we're studying on Sundays, normally, First Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade See, because of the resurrection, this is my new focus. So these things of the world, uh, whether they seem to be satisfying or they're dark shadows that you walk through this world, those things don't take precedence over this one new reality that Jesus has come out of the tomb. Donald Gray Barnhouse is a well-known pastor that died many years ago. He was in a church in Philadelphia called 10th Presbyterian Church. And when his daughters were still young, his wife died. And they were driving on the way to the funeral that day. And his daughters were in the car. And he was kind of wrestling because they were young. How do I try to put some perspective on what my daughters are trying to deal with with the death of their mother? And so Barnhouse is driving and they come to a traffic light. The car is stopped and and it's a bright sunny day. But in the lane next to them comes a big box truck. And instead of the sun filling in their car, now it's a big shadow. And Barnhouse turns to his daughters when this happens and he said, Would you rather get hit by a shadow or by the truck? And one of the daughters says, oh, daddy, that's a silly question. The shadow can't hurt you. I'd rather be hit. The the shadow can't hurt you. I'd rather be hit by the shadow than by the truck. And then Barnhouse says to his daughters, the truck of death hit Jesus. So mommy only has to go through the shadow. And then he quotes, even though I walk through the shadow of death. I fear no evil. Why? Because the resurrection is true. It appeals to your mind. It, it appeals to your morals. It appeals to your soul. It really happened. So Paul builds his stool. Puts his each leg on. And then he sits down, as it were. And he says, hey... That's my case. I can rest in that. And the question is, 
What are you resting in? Let's pray together.